Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to morning worship at Hillhead. Our service this morning is being led by Christine Kling, who's here on student placement with us throughout Lent, and the sermon will be preached by our minister, Katrina. Very special welcome to any visitors with us this morning. Good morning, everyone. I could already promise you something. The sun is coming. So I live in here. This morning I walk my dog and it was a beautiful blue sky. So the spring is coming. That's the first promise of the day. My, my name is, is Christine Kling, uh, as Anne just announced. And for some of you visiting us today, uh, you might hear perhaps some accent, so I am French. Uh, so stay with me during all this series. Uh, I will do my best to speak slowly and repeat if necessary. Our first uh, song this morning is a new song. And uh, in this new song, there is all the theme of promises of God that uh, we have started to study during all this period of land. Yes, we, we come here this morning to give praise to the Lord. The Lord is gracious and his steadfast love endures forever and ever. Good is a pride is the Lord say to us the Psalm 25, verse 8 to 10. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he has took sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his decrees. So let us pray. Lord, you gather us this morning, people from different ages and cultures, journeying together in your name. We are modern pilgrims, bearer of a tradition a society often would like to ignore. And we confess that we often find difficult to follow and to discern your way in this complex world. We turn to you with a humble heart, standing on the promises of your grace, of your infinite love and mercy. Our unique desire is to follow your commands, becoming people of love, of hope, showing hospitality and friendship. Lord, teach us your wisdom and fill our heart with your grace. Help each of us to be your faithful servant, Christ humble ambassadors in the place and context we have been called in. We ask in your preacher's name. We will say now all together the Lord's Prayer, so in your own language, version 
how it fits to you. If you want to stand, you can, or just stay seated. Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know the worship of the Lord. Pardon me, my sins, as pardon me, my sins. For you in the kingdom and the power and the glory for heaven and The reading this morning is taken from Jeremiah chapter 31, starting at verse 31. The Lord says, The time is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Although I was like a husband to them, they did not keep that covenant. The new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel will be this. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. None of them will have to teach his fellow citizen to know the Lord, because all will know me, from the least to the greatest. I will forgive their sins, and I will no longer remember their wrongs. I, the Lord, have spoken." The Lord provides the sun for light by day, the moon and the stars to shine at night. He stirs up the sea and makes it roar. His name is the Lord Almighty. He promises that as long as the natural order lasts, so long will Israel be a nation. If one day the sky could be measured and the foundations of the earth explored, only then would he reject the people of Israel because of all they have done. The Lord has spoken. And the second lesson is taken from John chapter 17, starting at verse 21. I pray that they may all be one, Father. May they be in us just as you are in me, and I am in you. May they be one so that the world will believe that you sent me. I gave them the same glory you gave me, so that they may be one, just as you and I are one. I in them, and you in me, so that they may be completely one, in order that the world may know that you sent me, and that you love them as you love me. Father, you have given them to me, and I want them to be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, the glory you gave me, For you loved me before the world was made. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you. And these know that you you sent me. I made you known to them, and I will continue to do so in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and so that I also may be in them.
think I should thank Christine for her, her work leading this morning. It's always a challenge leading for the first time in a, in a church where you're not ever so familiar. I'm just going to move this because I So our journey through Lent continues and it gathers pace as we are already at the fourth Sunday. And we travel onwards in time from the days of Moses to the writings attributed to the prophet Jeremiah. And in order to set the scene a little bit for our explorations, I thought it might be useful just to remind ourselves a little bit of what has happened in that intervening period. Um, It's not ever so clear, but hey, never mind. It was the best picture I could find, and I failed to print out copies of it for you. But this is kind of the Old Testament story drawn as a diagram. And we began way, way back a few weeks ago at creation and the story of Noah. And we remembered that God made a covenant with the whole of creation that it would never again be destroyed by flood. The whole of creation, including the humans, but also the animal and plant and even the mineral aspects of creation. And then we moved on to Abram, who became known as Abraham, and God's covenant with him that there would be, through him, many generations, sorry, many nations, many generations, obviously, but also many nations. Yet he and Sarai, later Sarah, his wife, were childless, so he had to cling on to that promise through a long time. Last week, we'd moved on about four or five hundred years to the time of Moses, when the people were in exile in Egypt, And Moses led them out of slavery. And we looked at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, through the lens as best we were able of that promise of hope. So seeing them not as kind of mean prohibitions, but rules that would help them to model what God wanted them to be as a priestly nation. This free sample of the hope that they professed. And in between, quite a lot has happened. We had the period of the Judges. The judges were women and men chosen for their wisdom who people came to with their problems and their concerns and said, can you help us with this? And guided by God's wisdom, they did so. But the people began to look around and they noticed that that nation over there had a king and and that nation over there had it. And do you know what? Every nation had a king but them. And they didn't like it very much, so they started asking for a king. And through the prophets, and particularly through Samuel, God kept saying, look, you you really don't want a king. Trust me, you do not want a king. Oh, but we do, they said. We do want a king. God, being incredibly gracious and having given people free will, said, okay, you want a king? You can have a king. And so we had Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, who were the three we know the most about and are seen as the greatest kings. Now, the reality is Saul, I think, suffered from mental health issues. He was clearly depressed sometimes, and he used to call David in to play his harp. But sometimes he got very angry, and he once held a spear at David in a fit of of rage. So he was displaced by David. David, of course, is the one we think of as the great man, the man after God's heart. The man who rather liked the ladies, and when he spotted one bathing on the roof, who he particularly fancied, he kind of had his way with her and then arranged for her husband to get bumped off when she got pregnant. David was probably the greatest king, but he was not without his flaws. And then came Solomon. Solomon, who we remember for his wisdom, the one who arbitrated between two women, possibly two prostitutes, who had both given birth to children. One of them's baby died, one of them lived, and they said, well, what should we do? And he said, right, just chop it in half, half each. That seems fair. 
And of course, the real mother said, no, 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 let the child live. If that's what it means, let the other woman have her. But I have to say, compared to his dad, Solomon was even worse when it came to the ladies. And then we went on, there were fallings out, and the northern kingdom of Israel went one way, and the southern kingdom of Judah went the other way. And if you read through Kings and Chronicles, what you kind of get is, so-and-so was king for so many years, and he was bad. So-and-so was king for so many years, and he was pretty bad too. And so it goes on. But eventually comes, I can't find him now, King Josiah. King Josiah is the one we remember for his reforms. He was the one who ordered that the temple, which had fallen into total ruin, be rebuilt. And during that cleaning up process, somebody just happened to find a scroll. And that scroll just happened to be the law. And Josiah read it, and he was horrified. Because he realised everything that the people had agreed they would do, they weren't doing They were going their own way. And and actually, if he took God literally, then bad things were going to happen to them. So he decided that they needed to sort themselves out, get their act together. And those, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story that Josiah called everybody together. And they stood for a very long time whilst the whole scroll was read to them. And they rededicated themselves to God. He said, right, we'll get it right this time. Um, well, it didn't last very long. And they, in due course, wound up in exile in Babylon. But it's around about this time, between Josiah and the exile in Babylon, that the writings attributed to Jeremiah are thought to have been written. It's quite difficult to say what is and isn't historical um, in one book, in this, this Jeremiah book. It's a really complicated book. And the um, commentators seem to think that there are probably several different books pulled together. I don't know if you've ever tried reading it. When I was a student, we were actually told by one of our tutors to read it front to back in a single sitting. By the time I got to chapter 20, I decided I either had to stop reading or hide a very high tower. And I thought stopping reading was probably the better idea. It's incredibly depressing and demoralising. Every time Jeremiah says to God, please, I want to pray for these people, God just says, no, they're too wayward. Just don't. Just don't. Please do not pray for them. Jeremiah does all sorts of weird and wonderful things to try and illustrate things, but it doesn't really seem to work. And yet, in the middle of this book, which is doom and gloom and awful, are three chapters which are referred to by scholars as the Book of Hope. I wish now that I'd got to chapter 30 on my slog through the Book of Jeremiah, because suddenly in all that gloom and misery is something truly beautiful and rich in imagery and full of promises. Now, I think that's a sermon in itself, really, that when it all feels doom and gloom and terrible, that sometimes you just get that, moment, a glimpse of hope, a reminder of promises. Even in the darkest places, even in the most dire circumstance of exile and oppression, God's promises still stand. Even when it all seems too much, even when we think we'll just give up, God says, hang on a minute, I still got hope for you. I've still got promises and I want to give you new beginnings. I want to renew you. 
Some of you will be aware of the theologian Walter Brueggemann. Um, I really like him. He's a kind of very thoughtful theologian. And he notes that central to this book of hope is the truth of God's faithfulness, both to God's promises and to God's people, that even when the circumstances suggest otherwise, God is still utterly committed. Even when everything seems to be overwhelming, God is still powerful. And Brueggemann asserts that staying close to God's promises means not being subsumed under either false promises or despair. It's a kind of determined hanging on, even when things seem to say otherwise. As I was researching this, and before I knew which hymn uh, Christine was going to pick to start off, I was reminded of the words in a very old hymn, an old redemption hymn. Standing on the promises that cannot fail, when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail, by the living word of God I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. The promises between God and people are inherently small p, political. They're powerful. That's what political is about. It's about power. They doggedly refuse to be defined or confined by the present experience. And they dare to believe that there is a new possibility. It's only looking backwards that you see, oh, yeah, that's kind of how, I don't know if that happens to me all the time, that... Only afterwards can I see how God was leading me through some tough time or God was with me in some tough time. We hang on in the darkness and eventually we begin to make some sense of it. The book of Hope, these three chapters in the centre of Jeremiah, are interesting in their form. They're written as lyrical poetry, not prose. And that in itself is really significant. Music, poetry, art and drama all have the capacity to subvert or transcend power structures, to express truths not otherwise possible. Think of the protest songs of the 60s and 70s. Think of the work that Elaine does with people trapped in poverty, telling their story through drama and film and all sorts of creative ways. A way to speak truth to power creatively. A way to subvert the situation that says, you haven't got a voice, you're not worth hearing. I wonder who else speaks truth to power in song, drama, dance, comedy, art, whatever it might be. Or how, in fact, we might do that. Chapters 30, 31 and 33 of Jeremiah consist of a number of short promissory, promissory, I never how you're supposed to say these words, poems, each of which has at its heart God's desire to make things new, to restore, to replant, to re-establish, rather than to uproot and tear down, which are other themes that go through the first part of Jeremiah. And the books, the verses that we heard that Alison read for us are much loved by both Jews and Christians alike. And yet, do you know, they are some of the most abused in the whole canon of Scripture. Not actually helped by the way the New Testament letter to the Hebrews uses them. Suggesting that the new covenant to which it alludes 
is only understood as that made in Christ's death, and that that somehow supersedes or negates any previous covenant. That doesn't actually fit with what we've been seeing as we've worked through the scriptures over the last few weeks. We see a consistency in God's promises, that the covenants are continuous and contiguous, one with another. If we read Jeremiah correctly, we need to keep in mind that its first purpose was to speak hope to the original hearers, the people in exile in Babylon, to reassure them that the God of the promise would renew the covenant with God's people, that is, with Israel and Judah. So I've said, the new covenant is consistent and contiguous with the old one. In one sense, nothing changes. God remains God. God remains faithful and trustworthy. The law is still the law, designed to enable the people to fulfil their priestly role. What is new here is a shift in understanding. A shift from head to heart, from knowledge to transformation. Rather than memorising the letter of the law, the people are to internalise the spirit of the law, which then finds expression in practical obedience. We use this image of the free sample of hope that the people were called to be, to live out this vision of the reconciled creation in God's eternal Sabbath or Shabbat to live out that which we imagine in the Revelation vision. And that seems to me what what Brueggemann is detecting here, that something has to go on in the people to allow them to be what they are called to be. The promise ends with some powerful words of hope and renewal. God will forgive everyone their sins. And more than that, God will deliberately choose to forget those sins now if that's not mind-blowing then not a lot really is the newness and forgiveness that christians recognize in the life and work of jesus christ is totally and utterly grounded in this thoroughly jewish text the god of promise whose covenant since the dawn of human experience express hope of restoration and renewal doesn't change, even though our understanding may change and, in fact, often should change. Jews and Christians alike should read these words in the midst of adversity and find hope. Even when you're near despair, to discover to your amazement that God doesn't just wipe the slate clean, but God brings new hope. Brueggemann asserts that there is hope in this reading for both Jews and Christians. So why then is it that the letter to the Hebrews is at least potentially problematic? I think we need to spend a few moments thinking about that. Probably won't surprise you that partly that comes down to the choices that have to get made in translation and interpretation. The Hebrew scriptures that people generally had around the time the New Testament was being written were in Greek. So they were working with a Greek translation of the Hebrew, and subtleties do get lost 
in translation. Hebrews chapter 8 sees a new covenant as superseding the old, which will soon disappear. That's what it says. By extension of that, there are and always have been Christians who see the New Testament, that's Matthew's Revelation, as completely superseding the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, as if we can just chuck that away. And actually, to be fair, at the time that the canon was being drawn up, serious questions were asked about, well, do we include the Hebrew scriptures or don't? Do we just say that's all gone? irrelevant and just have these nice new ones or or some of them but that wasn't what they decided in the end they felt we should keep this I don't know precisely why they did but I would like to think that the inspiration of God led these wise men and it would have been men in those days to recognize continuity as well as discontinuity between the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament Christian scriptures. To sense that God's promises hadn't been changed or negated, but something new, some new understanding came alongside. That what we actually see is a continuous renewal rather than a replacement. I think that fits with Christian eschatology that anticipates a new creation. And I think it also fits with the Jewish idea of the eternal Sabbath. Where that might go now in our time is something that perhaps we want to think about. Hebrews 9 and 10 note how the Moses covenant was sealed with blood and how the new covenant is sealed in Christ's blood. These are words we hear every time we take communion. But rather than seeing these as competing covenants, or saying that the latter displaces the former. We're invited to use instead language of completion, of fulfilment, or the word that Brueggemann prefers, renewal, making new again. That in Christ's sacrifice, the covenant finds its full extension, not to be expressed just by one small nation, but explicitly offered to all. It's going back out again, having narrowed into history. It's starting to spread out again. The high priestly prayer in John 17 culminates in the beautiful and poignant desire of Jesus that all who believe may be one, and that through them the whole world may come to know, understand, and believe also. I can't help feeling in that prayer, in a way, we're taken back through history back through Jeremiah, back through Moses, back through Abraham, back to Noah, and back to the beginning, when all was new and all was one. But what does any of that mean for us as we try to follow Jesus? How do we move from merely learning about the covenant, merely learning about Christian discipleship, the head knowledge, to demonstrating the ongoing work of the heart transformation in our daily lives. How can we, in some small measure, be an example of the hope we profess, that free sample of the renewed community in Christ? I think, in the end, it comes down to being authentic in our life together, sharing our joys and our sorrows, our struggles and our losses, even our anger and frustration, 
Learning to be real with each other, which isn't always easy. Learning to share, which is definitely difficult. It means doggedly clinging on to our hope, even when experience suggests that that might be futile. It means laughing in the face of evil. It means singing and dancing and declaring a new vision. It means subverting all that might oppress. It means being secure of our own identity in Christ as children of the one true God. Above all, it means learning what it really is to love. We go back to some of what Christine was doing with the children at the beginning, gathering in these words and phrases around heart. I suspect a lot of them, the heart ones, are linked up with love. Love for neighbour, love for God, love for ourselves. This, as we've said over and over, is the centre of what it's all about. The rest being commentary. I only picked one hymn this week, and it's the one we're about to sing, Blessed Be the Time That Bides, Binds even. Blessed Be the Time That Binds. And I have to confess I'm not a fan of it. I find it more than a little bit mawkish. But I chose it deliberately because this is the hymn that is sung at the close of every Baptist World Alliance event. Rachel's uh, Seventh-day Baptists are part of the Baptist World Alliance Christine's French Baptists are part of the Baptist World Alliance. Nigerian Baptists are part of the Baptist World Alliance. It's a hymn that joins us together. A hymn that expresses the love we have in God that joins us together. And saying this is stronger. What unites us is stronger than what might destroy us. And even if we disagree, and we will sometimes, we are part of one body. The hope we have in Christ will sustain us in the, to do the work we need to do in the daily grind and that surely is what the promise is about Today mothers are celebrating a very special occasion set aside for them Although Mother's Day has different origins in other parts of the world most have been influenced by an American tradition established by Anne Jarvis in 1868 She created a committee to establish a Mother's Friendship Day in order to reunite families that had been divided during the Civil War. Though Anne passed away before the celebration became popular, her daughter continued her mother's efforts and eventually a day was set aside to recognise the special contributions of mothers. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, on a day like Mother's Day, there are so many different emotions that we bring to you. Some of us bring emotions of deep gratitude and joy for the mothers who have loved us, cared for us, and taught us how to live well. Other of us bring emotions of sadness and pain. Some of us are saddened because our relationship with our mum is not easy or never existed at all. Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, the heavens, the moon, the stars, the beauty of your creation, we praise and worship you alone, almighty God. We thank you for all your creation and for your people throughout the world in all their differing cultures and environments. 
We pray for all humankind, and especially for those suffering poverty, persecution, slavery, oppression, injustice, and the effects of conflict. We ask you to give compassion, wisdom, and courage to your children throughout the world, that they and we may defend those who suffer and work to bring relief wherever we can. Hear our prayer. Amen. It's time to, to, to say the blessing as a benediction for all of all. Um, perhaps some, some few words coming to my mind at the end of this service and after the, the sermon of, uh, of Katiana. No matter where we are just now, or perhaps in a place of a wilderness or place of dirt, we have this deep promise that God will renew everything. We have in our heart this joy of the salvation, this joy and the presence of Christ in us. So let us close with the usual words of benediction and share with one another. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. And we could close with the three Amen. Amen.